0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This series of California-based podcasts is brought to you in partnership with the Serica Initiative, our nonprofit program. The mission of the Serica Initiative is to produce independent educational and public awareness programming to make the U.S. and global public better informed about China. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, the weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China. Our indispensable daily newsletter features a roundup of the news from hundreds of sources, plus links to the original writing on our website. Sign up for SupChina access and you get all that and much more with stories on everything from the Belt and Road to local entrepreneurship and innovation in China from the travails of ethnically Chinese researchers in the U.S. in this age of creeping McCarthyism to China's ongoing extra-legal internment of hundreds of thousands or, by some estimates, over a million Uyghurs and other Muslims in China's Xinjiang region. We're sure you'll agree it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and today I am at Stanford University, the penultimate stop in Seneca's tour of California a few years back when Jeremy and I were still doing the show from Beijing, we had a terrific young intern at Seneca named Cole. Today, we are here to talk with Cole's dad, Mike, or at least that's how I know him. Most people call him Ambassador Michael McFall, who served as ambassador to Russia during the second Obama administration from January of 2012 until February of 2014. Mike is the author most recently of From Cold War to Hot Peace, which is an excellent memoir of his Russian sojourns that I have recommended before on this show. That book details the many reasons why at the Helsinki summit between Trump and Putin in uh, July of 2018. Vladimir Putin asked to interview him along with Bill Browder. We are grateful that you weren't renditioned. And Mike, I promise this interview will be considerably gentler than the one you (laughs) might have had with the FSB in Moscow. Welcome to Cynical Mike. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming by. Yeah, I'm really happy to be here. So people naturally associate you with Russia. That's where your expertise really lies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of late, you have taken quite an interest in China. Can you can you tell us what that has involved and, and what issues you're focusing on uh, when it comes to China?
1: Sure. Well, it goes back a long ways because, uh, you know, I was initially interested in communist systems. Oh, I okay. studied in the Soviet Union. I used to teach a course here at Stanford called... The political economy of post communism, where we looked at China, Russia, the post communist world and Eastern Europe. So it was initially this interest in how these kinds of systems reform, and the, and in particular the relationship between political institutions and economic growth. Mm. Later in life, and then like the last five years, I, you know, I'm writing a book. Let me let me rephrase that. I'm aspiring to write a book <laughs> uh, about great power competition in the twenty first century. Uh. And looking at how the West deals with China and Asia, Russia and Europe, Iran and the Middle East. Oh, wow. Um, It's a big book. and It's something I've thought about for a long time, but finally want to try to think systematically about it. And and I start uh, in all those places. I know the Russia case the best, obviously, and I'm just learning about China. But I want to look at it historically to see what is the relationship between power, regime type, and leaders – as these bilateral relationships change, yeah,
0: there's been a lot of
1: really interesting
0: uh, literature just on on sort of the institutions of authoritarianism, right? And of course, with auto- you know, with this, this this backslide that we're seeing, this democratic backslide, and the rise of more and more
1: authoritarian states,
0: it's really urgent that we understand that.
1: I agree. That's going to be absolutely. so, yeah. but I'm also worried. Uh, you know, on the policy side, I I'm suspicious of the consensus in America among my kind of national security elites about uh, the necessity of a new Cold War with China. I'm glad to hear (laughs) Um, that. You know, I'm almost always naturally suspicious of any consensus. (laughs) Like, that's just kind of who I am. Um, But it is striking to me that this has come out of the blue in some ways in the last couple of years. And so I just want to interrogate the hypothesis. And and to do so means I have to learn more about China. So I go to China quite a bit. I spent last summer in China. Yeah, you did. Uh, Four years ago, I spent uh, the whole summer there. And I'll never be a China specialist, but I'm I'm trying to get smarter about all things Chinese. Well, just last summer, like you said, you you were there. And after coming back, you penned an op-ed that you
0: put. In the Washington Post, I believe, if that's correct, uh, you were you were a month in residence at Peking University, and you wrote, you know, about your rather depressing conclusion that China is actually winning the ideological contest with yes. the U.S.
1: Can you explain what you meant by that? Well, it was more commentary on us than them, right? Which is to say, you know, in the Cold War, which I know well, and and by the way, when I say uh, I'm, I'm nervous about the Cold War, I think some of the the people new to this debate about China don't know about the history of the Cold War. Right. And they make a lot of assumptions about the Cold War that I think are incorrect. They've remembered it in a particular way because we now have won the Cold War. Mm-hmm. It didn't feel like we were winning the Cold War in the 60s and 70s. And why we won the Cold War, I think people forget. Right. Um, for me, uh, a big part of winning the Cold War was about the, the war of ideas, uh, freedom versus not, markets versus uh, command economies. And I think on that dimension especially in the Trump era, uh, we don't have the kind of high ground anymore yeah. when it comes to uh, democracy, human rights, rule of law. And China offers an alternative uh, to that. And if we're not even championing the things we used to, we're not going to win that ideological struggle.
0: That's absolutely right. Uh, you actually you, you talk about three arguments that Americans used to take comfort in when it came to that. One, that, w- that China was moving toward more market liberalization, right. uh, that China was moving if not already, you know, toward pluralism, then at least more toward a tolerance, um, a, a less repressive right. political system, and that uh, so many Chinese seem to genuinely admire the U.S. But uh, are all these things, you know, you, you argue that they've, they've seen in, in this time of Trump, um, these arguments have grown weaker, right? Uh, are they dead though? I mean, couldn't a different American administration, a different leadership, different terms of competition with China? really revive those same hopes
1: yes absolutely yeah uh, I'm, a, I'm an optimist and i'm a long-term optimist about uh liberalism with a small l right not not liberals and conservatives but uh i think it's premature to declare that that liberalism is dead vladimir putin did that a couple months ago in a very famous interview he said other powers and he he was he was I think he, on his mind, he th- he was thinking of places like China and Iran were rising with a different set of ideas. And I think, you know, it's way too premature to call this the end. And that's another good lesson from the Cold War, by the way. There were periods during the Cold War. Uh, first, we had the debate about who lost China. And it seemed like China and the Soviet Union was a block uh, and we were in decline. Then the 70s, you had it in an even more acute way where we had our troubles, you know, real difficult troubles at home domestically, um, uh, and communism seemed to be on the rise throughout the world in, in Indochina and South America, Southern, America uh, Southern Africa, and even Latin America. And in retrospect, we probably overreacted to those uh, moments. Yeah. So I, I think we need to have a little more confidence uh, in the things that have made our societies great
0: couldn't agree with you more I mean, and don't I, forget
1: also i would say although now i'm getting into territory that i'm not an expert i think sometimes there's a reification of the enemy that then suggests all chinese think alike and and uh we did that during the cold war too right we thought they were all communists they all believed in the same thing by the way all communist countries thought alike that was a huge mistake we made uh during the cold war and i just want to keep open the proposition that maybe all chinese don't think alike and <laughs> and that would be really very superficial for us to think that they're all rallying behind this kind of illiberal international against the west
0: we i mean yeah, you're obviously correct and uh, we all have friends and and people i mean even and i'm just not talking just about the intelligentsia that i have some you know contact with in in, in beijing but also with my kind of dumb uneducated rocker friends a lot of them are you know they're very critical of C I mean a lot of them are, are disappointed or or worse with him uh-huh. and yet I find that it is harder than it has been in the past to sell the merits of liberal democracy yes uh, they, they look at what we're doing what you know what we've done here um, they look at what they've been able to accomplish and it's really a tough sell i mean and at the same time it's more urgent than ever to make that sale right because of the authoritarian backslide that we're seeing all over the place that's got to be a a source of pretty big frustration
1: well i would say two things to that i agree and and in but in two different dimensions one is the way we're practicing democracy in the united states is not inspirational for anybody i travel a lot around the world and the way we're doing it now we're not inspiring a lot of people to yeah. say, "Oh, we want to be just like them." right So we've got to get our own house in order first. I agree with that. The second thing, though, I think is important again I, I want to keep i'm going to say a hundred times I'm not a China expert. I just see it in a comparative context, right? Well, anyone who says they are isn't well <laughs> I'm glad you said that right. not me because right. uh, you are an expert on I'm these things not. and i'm just I'm just, a, I'm just a, a student but but you know, in comparative context, remember that China has done better at taking more people out of poverty than any country in human history in the sure. last four decades. That is a fact. It's also a fact that they did so not by doubling down on communist totalitarian dictatorship. They did it by rejecting that period. That's we had right. 20 years of that in, in in China and millions of people died. And so it was the moving away from that that helped to to this economic miracle. And I think that gets conflated sometimes in these discussions. They think it's the communist party, the strong state, the guided thing. Well, actually, it's a much more complicated story than that. And it was liberalization on the economic side that helped that economic growth.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I was a little flippant when I used to say that they mostly just got out of the way. Yes. But I think that that maybe takes it too far, too, because there were uh, important institutional reforms that could only have been done by a strong state. And there were Wise and prescient infrastructure investments right. that probably could have been done only with under, a strong state. Yeah, with a strong state. I think that's fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. But um, they did get out of the way. I still agree with you. Yeah. No, no, yeah. And, I'm sorry. and the entrepreneurial spirit of no uh, Chinese culture is job much growth comes up. from the private sector. Yes. Um,
0: most you know profit growth comes from the, the private sector. Uh, well, that that's without <laughs> say, but yeah, job growth um and it's a huge percentage of job right. growth. Eighty or ninety percent of job growth comes from from the, the private sector in China today. Now, one, one of the things that I found really interesting about that op-ed that you wrote was you talked about whataboutism and how you had to actually engage in a little bit of it yourself. And yeah. usually, I mean, that, how does it feel with the shoe on the other foot? Because <laughs> usually we're the ones pointing at Moscow or Beijing and, and saying, hey, that's just whataboutism. Right. Now, t- tell us, for the, those of you who haven't read the article, when did you have to,
1: to play at that game? Well, when I was ambassador in Russia... Uh, whenever we would try to criticize certain actions of Vladimir Putin, uh, his regime and his media channels would always pivot to whataboutism.
0: What about black incarceration in America? What about the the genocide of the Native Americans?
1: Exactly, exactly. Yes, you know your Cold War history well. And by the way, those are things they used to say in the Cold War, and they say them now. Brought them right back. Um, uh, and, And, you know, I would try to say, my argument as an ambassador was one, uh, you know, I'm an academic, remember, I'm an academic first and foremost. I've been mm-hmm. working at Stanford for 30 years. Uh, but I would always say facts matter, evidence matters. Two, um, two wrongs don't make a right. So maybe even if you were right, and I wouldn't cede the point, but let's, a classic whataboutism with Putin would be, well, we went into Ukraine and annexed Crimea, but you did the same in Serbia, right? You you uh, went into Kosovo. Now, those two cases are radically different. Right. Uh, but even if they were the same, uh, the argument, I, my argument, would be: Well, two wrongs don't make a right. Sure. Just be, If you thought it was wrong there, then that doesn't justify you doing it here.
0: Right, right. Right. And now you've had to engage in a little bit of your of it on your own. You. Yeah. As you said.
1: Uncomfortably. <laughs> <laughs> so. uh,
0: under what sorts of circumstances?
1: Well, I, I just in the in the Trump era, you know, I I see some of the same tactics of of President Trump and his uh, defenders uh, that that the Putin folks use, right? right. So, in addition to whataboutism, there's this diversionary thing that they always do, right? So, when we're focused on a debate about annexation, they want to change the channel. They want to talk about something else. Right. Um, and uh, most certainly, President Trump seems really good at that—to try to you know, create some distraction over here, so we all run over and talk about that. And but I found myself, uh, you know, in 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 attacking some of the misconduct of the president using whataboutism, mm. and I don't like it. And yeah, I shouldn't uh, do it. Yeah.
0: Now we should all try to stay away from that. Uh, people really do associate you, obviously, with, with Russia and uh, with. For better or for worse, democracy promotion, however you want to to, to interpret that. Uh, It's something that critics would say that you pursued pretty zealously in Russia. Uh, You were accused constantly of seeking to foment regime change. And Mm -hmm. that's, you know, the subject of your book is very extensive. Um, But how would you succinctly characterize what your actual approach was when it came to promoting democratic values and institutions in a nominally democratic Russia?
1: So you know, remember, I worked three years at the White House before right. I went to the went to Moscow. It so, was at NSA, right? National Security Council. That was at the NSC, working for the NSA, National Security Advisor, right? So right. I, you know, I worked with Obama in the campaign. We won. You know, the day after the inauguration, I, I showed up at the White House for my first government job, and that meant that I was there for the creation of our strategy towards Russia. You know, right. I-, I was the kind of. Quarterback that whole process, the interagency process for developing it, and when it came to these issues, uh, we had two principles that at least we wrote down. We didn't always practice it, but it was it was the policy. One, we're not going to check our values at the door when we go to negotiate about Iran or a strategic arms control limitation. We're gonna we're gonna keep talking about these things. We're not gonna we're not gonna pretend that if I don't say something about these. Uh, violations of human rights, that that somehow is going to endear us to the Kremlin. But two, and this was the controversial piece, uh, controversial when Putin came back, wasn't right. controversial originally. When
0: Medvedev was still yeah, in Yeah, when power Medvedev
1: power. was around, it was fine. It, w- it was something we called dual-track diplomacy. And our theory was, our strategy was, we're going to engage with the government, but we're also going to engage directly with society. Mm. Uh, and that's going to be part of our diplomacy. And that engagement is not to do regime change. You know, Barack Obama is not a big regime changer guy. Kind no, of guy. So no. the idea that he sent me to Russia to overthrow Putin is absurd. But the idea was we're going to we want we want to disabuse Russians of some of the the propaganda and misinformation that we saw about our country. So that meant meeting with people when I was ambassador, mm-hmm. uh, and it meant showcasing. American culture, uh, by the way, is one of the most fantastic parts of my job, like I would get to bring, especially like music, I'm a, you know, my father's a former uh, musician uh, like you, <laughs> uh, different kind of, different kind of music, by the way. But um, uh, so my, part, one of my jobs was like to bring um, musicians from America to perform at, in Moscow and at my house as a way to say, this is who we are. It's not just about, you know, what you read in the newspaper. Right, right. And by the way, music was one of the best ways to connect directly with Russians. They love and appreciate music. Or anyone, um, for that matter. Anyway, I mean, I, mean, I don't want to – yeah, yeah it's, 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 it, and it was – but what I got in trouble with Putin uh, for two things, uh, one, when we said engage with uh, society, we also meant the opposition. When we flew there in 2009 with President Obama, he also, by the way, met with all the opposition leaders Mm -hmm. of Russia. Mm -hmm. And it was no big deal. Nobody even read about it. It wasn't even in the news because we were in a more cooperative time. Right. Right. When I showed up in 2012, there had been massive demonstrations against the Putin regime. Uh, They were feeling very unstable. uh, And so when we did the same exact thing, and by the way, it usually wasn't me. It was usually some dignitary visiting from Washington. uh, That became... Uh, it felt like we were, you know, trying to overthrow the regime. So that that was the one space, and he would criticize us for that.
0: Well, they, they say a sore palate filleth the grit. And so when he's already feeling that insecurity. Yes. Um, and You're then right. that's that's right. really, yeah. I, I think that's some sometimes a failing on, on the part of American foreign policy is that we don't exercise quite enough security dilemma sensibility. I think
1: that's right. Yeah. I agree yeah. with that in retrospect.
0: Mm. When we... um. Transpose this to the key of China hypothetically, you know, were you to be appointed again to say, um, uh, a position in the State Department where you were, you know, maybe Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia Pacific or something right. like that, or in, in an ambassadorial capacity under a, a hypothetical democratic administration? With China on your mind, yeah, would you approach things differently? I mean, presumably because China, Russia was at least nominally democratic, it right. was sort of okay for you to meet with the opposition. Yes, maybe not so much in China. Uh, that would maybe be it's a great uh, question.
1: More, more provocative that's a great question uh because there are some very big contrasts there's not you know i know who the opposition leader of russia is right. his name's alexei Navalny. Yeah. uh he yeah. has run against putin you know he's leading a grassroots movement um uh they have legal opposition in russia it seems different to me in china oh, very much, uh, yeah. and and so i think you raise an important question how you would do that kind of uh, engagement. But there's also a flip side to it. There's a different side to it, uh, which is paradoxical. Like when I go to play basketball over here at Stanford, as I do from time to time with my sons, including Cole, uh, especially during the break, Uh, 95% of the people playing basketball over there are from China. That's right. (laughs) And they're not, there are no Russians over there. Uh, so we have, we have way more connectivity with Chinese society because of business and students and, and Chinese Americans than we do with Russia. Uh, and that's the paradox of the two relationships. On the one hand, it's more controlled in China. On the other hand, there's way more interaction between just Chinese and Americans and, so how you? I don't. I don't want to presuppose I would know how to do it. I think your point is an important one that times have changed, and they've changed in China too. By yeah, the way, it's yeah. not Nothing the way it better, was ten yeah. years ago. Uh, but I would hope that some administration would at least, you know, keep the proposition alive that we should engage with both the government and society. Yeah, no, I know, absolutely. I, I I do believe that's that's
0: true. I'm curious though whether the abiding and deep suspicion that Putin and his cronies had toward you. Has sort of maybe uh, affected still the way that you're seen and the way that you're treated when you go to China. Do people say, "Oh, here's this McFall guy, and he's, you know, this is that the that harbinger of, yes. of you know liberal interventionism." You know, this is the guy who's channeling Samantha Powers or whatever. Yes, uh,
1: I think that is true. Yeah, they, they do uh, regard you. At least you the elites know who I am, and uh, the intelligence services know who I am, uh, and uh, thankfully I still have a visa. Uh, I'm banned in Russia, you know. Now yeah, I'm on a yeah, visa yeah. ban list there, and I'm banned in Iran. Uh, I've been to Iran before, but I can't get a visa there today. Uh, and I hope that doesn't happen in China. Um, y- you know, the way I like to frame it is, you know, now I am a and I'm, I'm an academic. I'm trying to write. I'm trying to understand. And I would hope that there would be enough wisdom that that. And I used to say this as a diplomat all the time: uh, we're going to have our differences with Russia. And no amount of talking is going to settle those differences. We're not. We're never going to agree with Putin, for instance, about Crimea. Right. Uh, but what we can't do is have conflicts in U.S.-Russia relations based on misperception, or bad information, or misunderstanding. Uh, and that's kind of my argument about China too. Like, like, and I'm I'm worried about it. By the way, I see a lot of uh, giant assumptions in both countries. By the way, made when I'm in China, I hear things said about my country. I think, wow, that doesn't sound like the America I know. And it, usually in Washington, when I, I, I interact with a lot of you know national security elite types, I hear assumptions made about China. And you know, as an academic, I want to know, well, where's your evidence to support that hypothesis, right? So I, I see my role as an academic these days as an explainer, uh, not as an advocate mm. for this, that, or you know, let alone a revolution.
0: So I mean, I think. One of the things you might have had in mind when you're talking about the the you know incorrect assumptions that are being made in China about the United States must have to do with with this uh, their their belief that we are still assertively promoting some species of regime change yes uh, that you know I mean, we've heard plenty of this coming from not only Russian but also Chinese intellectuals. Right. There's no doubt about neo-containment about this policy, of right. color revolution, right. you know, looking at the lessons of the Arabs and, and, and all that stuff. Yes, um, I heard a lot of that. Last yeah, summer, absolutely. Yeah. And you know, probably nowhere is this more acute right now than in Hong Kong. When you look at Hong Kong, where people who I I regard as very very sensible in China uh just accept pretty uncritically the idea that. This this claim about black hands operating behind right. the scenes about you know right. the NED or the CIA right. funneling money to these 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 people, um, you know this goes back further though than just Hong Kong. It goes back further than just it goes back really to the Obama administration. Yep. Right. you know to oh eight oh nine and in that period, where, you know this whole discourse on internet freedom, for example, mm-hmm. uh, on universal values, just even the most innocuous public diplomacy efforts on our part were sometimes seen through a really kind of negative light um, as part of this whole liberal interventionist right. push, a right. uh, master plan. So is there, how do you finesse this? How do you communicate this with, with the people who you talk to in, in China? I mean, because I have to admit when I, Put myself in those shoes. And I look across at us. And when it looks like different sectors of society seem to move in exactly the same way at the same time. And I tried to tell them, look, this is not coordination. We're not that good, first of all. (laughs) It's just this is like the programming that comes of values, of shared values that the New York Times editorial board has similar values to these non-governmental organizations, right. has similar values to the U.S. State Department. Has, uh, And it's not the coordination, but right. it this falls like on it deaf ears. Is. Yeah. Yeah. How do you con- – uh, the most if I could
1: learn how to do that, I, I think I could really Well, imagine. I think you're on to something that's really hard uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, in the past, the United States has promoted regime change, sometimes through overt power, like we did in Iraq, sometimes through covert power. Mm-hmm. That's a fact. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I remember the first time we had this debate with Putin. Uh, Obama and Putin sat down, and and Putin just laid this out, right? Uh, he has this theory that we're always overthrowing regimes, and the truth is sometimes we have been. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so that makes it hard. I can tell you as, a, as a, an ambassador in Russia that was very hard when they say, well look, you did this in Serbia, you you know the CIA gave 40 million to the opposition, why should we not presume you're doing the same right now? So that's a dilemma, the history is there. Um what i would try to do as ambassador is to say that uh we're not a unitary actor in the united states there's not some and i can tell you you know i remember i showed up at the white house and nobody handed me the blue book of american <laughs> national interest right and said okay now this is what you're supposed to do it doesn't exist right. so it's, it's fluid it's, it's yeah. fluid and yeah. and obama is is radically different than bush when when he told i remember when he told putin he said, well, you may not know this, but I was against that war. And Putin kind of looked at him like, "Like, what mm-hmm. do you mean you are against that war? You you guys all think alike. And Obama right. was radically against that war. So that, the first thing is to say we're different and we do things in different ways. The second thing to say, uh, and I spent a lot of time last summer in China at the various, especially public things I did. I, it got really heated one night at, at Renmin. Uh, it was a great event. Like 500 people were there. And, uh pretty charged event. Um, and, you know, somebody asked this question, and and I was like, you're deeply misreading American spirit right now. You know, I'm, I'm about to fly to Montana where I'm from. Nobody in Montana wants to do regime change in China. Uh, we are in an isolationist moment in american history right now where and trump exemplifies that you think he's out there doing regime change he's saying we should pull back and 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 put up barriers and literally build walls that's true and yet
0: there's steve bannon uh who isn't Technically, part of his, you know, Good administration, point. but he, you know, just recently at that the Bloomberg conference, he said it very plainly. He said the real agenda is regime change when it comes to China. It is ending the reign of the Chinese Communist Party.
1: And that's a great point because yeah. that's that gets back to our pluralism. That right. that even when I was in the Obama administration, we this thing we're discussing right now, we had big debates about this. Oh yeah, uh, especially during the Arab Spring. Right, like what are we doing here, folks? What and, was
0: and, it? Um, Sit down, Samantha. We've all read your book. Is that, is that? Oh,
1: that didn't happen. But oh, Samantha worked right next that. to me at okay. the white, at the N.S.C. Uh, she was literally the door over from me.
0: I've seen that reported so many times, though. I mean, is that that didn't happen? Though uh, it didn't happen.
1: Uh, Maybe I it happened not when I was in the room. <laughs> okay. uh, I wasn't always in the room. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, there, I want to say one other thing on this because it's important. Oh, it is. Um, yeah. You can have your values, and not necessarily uh, believe that it's important to propagate them or to change you the Mm -hmm. other person right Mm -hmm. and i think that's something that needs to be respected uh in russia they would always say well you're doing regime change you're doing regime change and i would argue back well why don't you guys stop doing regime change on us why why are you calling on me to stop believing what i believe just because uh you know you believe something different so there's got to be a two-way street about this tolerance stuff like if i believe in democratic values and human rights Uh, I should be able to have a conversation. This is now the Russian government uh, with you without you asking me to check my values. Mm -hmm. uh, And I think that's an important – it's who we are as America. Not everybody. Mm -hmm. I want to be careful. But some Americans, this is what they think is right. So be respectful of our culture as well. How does cultural
0: relativism have to play into this? I mean, it was a time when people on our side of the political fence, Democrats, tended to be – Pretty much, we were we were cultural relativists. Yep, we were very sensitive to it. You are a deeply read historian. I mean, I'm looking around your office right now, and Got yeah, a say, lot of books about, on
1: revolutions right there. By yeah, the way, now that I think about it, we're talking about revolutions, yeah, but yeah, I absolutely. I want to make sure your listeners understand. I used to teach a course on revolutions. I'm not a professional revolution.
0: <laughs> Big difference. Yes. Yeah. Um, there's there's though I think. Um, there's been a, a big shift right now where uh, people on our side, I mean, the, the democratic party and people who are liberals and progressives. Uh, now we are absolutist in uh, the universality of, of, of American values, not American values, but of liberal democratic values. Right.
1: Universal uh, values yeah, as Obama right. used to call it.
0: This is, yeah, this is uh, what, while, while I mean, my minor conditional, I kind of think that, what is possible? The, the the rapidity with which a society can move toward those is conditioned by history, right? Yes, I mean, of so course. I think it's the universal in that it's there's still sort of it's sort of a pole star. It's still something to which we ought to be moving, but the realities are are very much conditioned by uh, by history by that inertia. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So one, the, I
1: agree, and and two, you know, I had some pretty uh, interesting, and I still do, uh, you know, with colleagues. Uh, about what values were we put above others, right? So right. one of my Chinese interlocutors over the summer was saying, well, you know, we're doing a pretty good job on economic growth. You guys aren't. Uh, you, you know, I, I flew into LAX and what a dump compared to our airports. Number one. And then number two, will their society, culture, state be better at Dealing with questions of inequality, and I don't know. I don't know the answer. It doesn't I, look that way right now. <laughs> doesn't look that way right now. But 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 you know, there's. It's what are you putting above all others? Um, and you know, I mean, I have. I'm I'm pretty clear on what I think, and I'm pretty clear about the history in terms of modernization over hundreds of years. But I in no way uh, would ever say that we, the United States, have have got kind of a monopoly on truth about these things, or a monopoly on superiority. We most certainly do not.
0: Mike, not too long ago, I did a show. It was about Hong Kong. And I, I made a very dismissive remark about this belief about the NED funding this and that in in Hong Kong. And a reader who clearly is not just some sort of you know, nutcase at all, uh, he said, you know, I was surprised at how dismissive you were I ask you to go onto the NED website, and uh, the, here's the page. You can search for what they're actually doing in terms of funding. Uh-huh. And so we, I did that, and I entered the, the a date parameter, and I I looked for the keyword Hong Kong. Turns out it's not a lot of money. It's 1.75 million dollars over the last five years. But the NED is funding different civil society organizations. These right. are a range of things. Some of it is you know labor organization. right? And you know, and I I said that. I wrote back to him, and I, I thought you know hey, this stuff seems pretty innocuous to me, right? Uh, and my sense, though, uh, writing about this and talking to other people was that some just shook their heads at me and said, you know, it's really naive for you to believe that that money isn't going to fund this, that, or the other things, you know, could be gas masks or, uh, right. or to, you know, it doesn't cost that much. I said, well, look, it's only $1.75 million over five years. And they said, how much money does it take to write a stirring anthem?
1: Uh-huh.
0: Right. Um. I, I suppose I, I have to, you know, grudgingly concede that they they may have a point. Are is this a mistake for us to allow our civil society organizations to, you know, the Chinese have this great saying that says, "Don't tie your shoes in your neighbor's melon patch. And don't stretch your arms under your your neighbor's plum trees. Just don't give the appearance that you might be doing wrong." Yeah. Um, are we giving the appearance that I mean, are we fe- feeding this suspicion?
1: Right. So I know NED well, the National Endowment for Democracy. Mm-hmm. I know that organization well, and their sister organizations, NDI, IRI, right. FLCIO, their Solidarity Center and SITE. Uh, I, I think it's, uh, and, and I want to I confess, like, a, my views on this are shifting, uh, given that where we're at today compared to where we were in the 90s. Uh, I opened the NDI right. office in Moscow in 1992. Uh, what was different about that compared to now? Number one, they just had a revolution, a democratic revolution, and we were the invited guests of the Russian government. Right. And our principal mandate was education. It was like, here's how federalism works. Here's how electoral law works, right? We weren't fomenting revolution. Um, number two, we had a strictly nonpartisan mandate. So anything that had to do with electoral politics, we couldn't support one party over another. Right. Uh, we had to support institutions and democracy, but, uh, cause I experienced this in Russia and I think it's very similar to what you're describing in Hong Kong. I don't know the funding groups in mm-hmm. Hong Kong, so I, I will avoid commentary on that. But Vladimir Putin got very upset at us in 2011. They had a mass, they had a, an election and it turned out that it was falsified. And civil society exposed that falsification, and that triggered hundreds of thousands of people on the streets. That
0: was in 2012?
1: 2011, 2012. Uh, yeah, right, it started right. in 2011, got big in 2012. Right. One of the NGOs that exposed that falsification received money from a U.S. government foundation, from mm-hmm. NDI. Mm-hmm. Now, our argument and NDI's argument was, well, free and fair elections, thats everybody's for that. That's not. There's nothing wrong with that. Universal values, right? Right. But Vladimir Putin saw that as undermining his legitimacy, and so that, that's a problem, right? That I, and I, I, eventually, the, this group is called Golis. It's called Voice. They stopped getting money from foreign groups precisely because they decided it's better for us to go it alone, even with less money, so we're not being accused of this kind of foreign intervention. You know, being being the puppets of the U.S. And, and so my kind of rule of thumb today is let those people in the countries decide what's right for them uh, and how they interact with outsiders. And I mentioned this guy Navalny, right? Yeah. Leader of the opposition in Russia. We never met once when I was a U.S. ambassador. Not huh. a single time. Even though on the TV you would think we were best buddies, right? Uh, Russian propaganda, I mean. And that's because he rightly decided it's not in his political interest to have a photo op with the U.S. ambassador. That's going to undermine him. It's going to undermine his credibility for what he was doing. And I think sometimes Americans are a little too, one, we th- we, we think we understand their local conditions better than we do. That's always a giant mistake around the world. And two, we're, we're a little too eager sometimes to take credit for what, after all, other people are doing, right. um, and uh, what those other people do. It conversely, autocrats, generally speaking, uh, always have to see some hidden hand behind people power because they can't believe that demonstrators in Hong Kong or demonstrators in Russia would do this on their own. Right. Of course, there must—it has to be the CIA's behind it because. Otherwise, these people wouldn't do that. And that's their misunderstanding of their own citizens.
0: Absolutely. So if you um, had the opportunity to take the ear of the next ambassador to, um, you've been the ambassador to one big illiberal state. um, Yes. The the incoming ambassador um, in in a Warren administration or a Buttigieg administration or even a second Trump administration where Terry Branstad to be replaced. What, What kind of advice would you give to him? Uh, would it be along the lines of what you just said? Yeah. Uh, I mean, a little, you know, dial down the
1: hubris. Yeah. Be a little more sensitive to the optics of situations, you know. Uh, and engage more with society. Yeah. So don't uh, part. Part of what I tried to do as ambassador was could be com- be completely transparent. Uh, I got on Twitter. I was one of the first ba- ambassadors to be on Twitter. So Follow you on Twitter. It's great. <laughs> so that everybody knew everything I was doing. Right. No. No secret meetings with a bunch of money under the table. Uh, be transparent. Um, and, you know, I, I, I do think, you know, remember, one of your jobs as the ambassador is to understand the country and to help your decision makers back home understand the country. You do that by engagement. You do that by getting out and being part of society. Mm. So that I think you can do in a, in a way that should not be misconstrued as being kind of revolutionary.
0: I'm curious now, having looked at Russia and lived in Russia and studied Russia for so very long and now looking at China, do you sense that in our community, whether it's the IC or just the broader policy community or even just in, you know, among the American cognoscenti, is there a tendency to view China and Russia through sort of the same lens?
1: Yes. And it's it's really simplistic and scary. Uh, and it has to do with this Cold War thing. So, you know, we are now entering a time where there are two superpowers in the world. Nobody else is going to be close to China and the United States looking out for a 100 years. Uh, China's has a communist party. Uh, China is seeking to advance its interests beyond its borders. And so there's this very natural... In fact, some of, they're some of the same people. The Cold Warriors right. from before are now like reemerging, uh, you know, as the champions here. The and, new
0: committee on the Present danger is yes, like, exactly. And
1: and I I would just would say um, again, I'm I i do I'm not an expert on China, but uh, we can make some really big mistakes by doing that.
0: One of the areas where I see a lot of conflation or, or maybe, uh, you know, too, uh, too much eagerness to draw parallels is in so-called influence operations. I think that, you know, the Russian influence operations are very well attested. I mean, yes. We have, you know, 17 or 18 intelligence agencies all concluding right. they meddled in our, I mean, and they're extensive. And we, we look at what even what they do out in the open. If you look at RT or anything, yep. you know, they're trying to sort of pull the epistemic rug from out under the American weather, setting our, our us against one another. They're pushing our hot buttons i look at chinese influence operations such as they are and i do not see many points of comparison yeah. i think they're almost entirely defensive they try to dilute or distract or sort of or or you know dogmatically defend against um a, a, a criticism of china right and that while it's not a good thing it's qualitatively different from you know an assault
1: on our institutions right yeah i agree i mean i want to learn more uh but i think Generally speaking, the, the qualitative nature of the two uh, operations are very different. Um, uh, I mean, which is not to say that there aren't, uh, you know, instances of Chinese influence in the United States and abroad. And my colleagues here at the Hoover Institution wrote a, a, a big study of that. Um, but uh, when I look at that, one, it doesn't compare to what the Russians are doing today. But two, and more importantly, it in, in no way compares to what the Soviet Union was doing during the Cold War. Hmm. And, That's a very good point. And yeah. this, this assumption, you know, again, I don't know China that well, but I know the Cold War really well. <laughs> you should come to my other office over at Hoover where I have literally, you know, a thousand books on the Cold War over there. Um, and, you know, back then, the Soviet Union had a positive ideology. They thought that history was on their side. And that capitalism was the penultimate stage before socialism, and that eventually the whole world would be communist. Now, some people believed it, some didn't, but they, the the founders of the of, of the country. And I, and definitely through Khrushchev and even Brezhnev for half of his life, this was something they engaged in and pushed around. And by the way, it had appeal as a, a set of ideas; it, it had an appeal sure. to, around the world. Um, and here at Stanford University, it had appeal. Uh, I, I was a kid here at Stanford during the <laughs> Cold War. You know, I had a you know a photo of Lenin at one point, point. Um, and so there was an active. Pro- program of propagation of Marxism-Leninism, mm-hmm. messianic, uh, yes, absolutely, yeah, and right. it's an ideological struggle, and one side will win. It's hard to look at what the Chinese are doing with the China Today inserts in the Washington Post, or, or you know their Confucius centers, to see that similar thing. And moreover, it's not even—I as I would say again—I don't know it as well as I need to, but to say that there's a coherent set of ideas that are being propagated, I'm not it's most certainly not communism for goodness sakes um i would i'm suspicious of it and the other part of it i would say that's very different than the cold war Is in the cold war we were the enemy had to be defeated and and we fought it out in places like vietnam and angola on the periphery Mm -hmm. uh china has a strategy towards you know developing relations in africa they also have a strategy of developing trade and investment with the United States, uh, and 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 they invest in the developing democratic world. And you cannot misconstrue that economic activity as somehow propagating autocracy or communism. That just doesn't make any sense to me. And I think that therefore it's an apples and oranges kind of. There is
0: a really good piece in in Foreign Affairs by Jessica Chen Weiss called "Making the World Safe for Autocracy," which I thought really you know got it. Pretty, pretty. Yes, perfectly. I remember that yeah, piece. Yeah. A very yeah. good piece, yeah. I think uh, we, she's a
1: Stanford PhD, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I
0: believe so. She's a yeah. terrific, terrific writer. Um, well, thanks you for know, the tip. Writer. Yeah, I'll check it out. Um, what do you make of the seemingly warmer relationship that we have now seen between Putin and Xi Jinping? Uh, is this something with any possibility of enduring or further deepening, or is this just an expedient? Is it just based on this shared and hopefully temporary uh, perception of a need to join hands to counterbalance an America that's pretty hell-bent on its own kind of regime change mischief?
1: Well, short-term, I give them both credit. Uh, It's a a relationship that's working for both countries. I think it's working especially for Russia, uh, being isolated and weak in the world. To have uh, a country like China that allegedly is your partner—that's a good thing for them. Um, and this, you know, uh, alliance of autocracies against the liberal world—you um, uh, know—I would have said five years ago that that the the Chinese Communist Party—and uh, and I'm, I'm deliberately saying not just President Xi—was uh, uh, having their cake and eating it too back then. Right. Lately, they haven't been able to do that, and and I wonder if there be, will become a time when other leaders, future leaders, or even within the you know within the party, will begin to think, well, hey, maybe this alliance with all these you know aut- autocracies uh, <laughs> so who are kind of dragging <laughs> us down. is not really <laughs> helping us out, but 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 not right now. That's most certainly right. Not right now. Long term, I don't think it lasts. I think uh, uh, Russia is the junior partner here. They know it. They don't like it. Um, uh, and uh, I th- I think there'll be tensions, you know, 20, 30 years out.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't, couldn't agree with you more. I do want to be respectful of your time. So let's move on to the recommendation section of okay. our, our program. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. It's been terrific. Uh, I got to say, I'm – I, I'm in such perfect accord with the way, I mean, not knowing really how you'd come down on this, these issues related to democracy promotion in China. Uh, it's really good to hear such a nuanced perspective. So, um, recommendations. Let me, let me first remind our listeners though that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina, China. And if you like what we're doing with Seneca and with the other shows in the Seneca network, the very best way you can support our work is to subscribe to SubChina's. China's Daily newsletter. This thing is really chock full of all the great reads there are on China, delivered to your inbox every weekday. And uh, our team works very, very hard to bring you this product. Sign up and spread the word. Now, on to recommendations. You got a good book for us, Mike, something that, that we should be
1: all. So, in, in the things I'm writing today, um, remember, I'm a political scientist uh, in the discipline of political science. And for many, many years, I would even say decades, We've kind of written out of our stories about international relations, the role of leaders. Hmm. Uh, we don't know how to uh, in, uh, we don't know how to capture them in numbers. We don't know how to measure their impact, uh-huh. right? So we just kind of forget about them. Um, and I've always thought that leaders matter. Uh, and after serving in the government, I came back to Stanford thinking even more so leaders matter. And you know the change from to Putin, Uh, from yeltsin had a big impact on what happened in in russia absolutely i think the change from obama to trump really underscores that leaders matter in the united states Uh, and i want to learn more about whether that's true in china or not Um, and so uh, i've read one book and i'm about to read this one so i've read elizabeth economy's book Mm -hmm. on leadership uh, David Lampton has a book about leadership, which I was just uh reading on my last trip to China. Uh And then this one by Han Shui yeah, Tong. Yan you know, Xuetong, yeah. You must know yeah. who he Yen is. Tong, uh, yeah. I've he's met him a few very, times very well over at Tsinghua. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've just started reading it, but the fact uh, I met with him a few times over the summer, he's a little cautious on the way he talks about China, I've noticed. Yeah. Um,
0: he sure is. But,
1: okay, well, that, but the idea that... um Leaders should be part of our discussion of international relations. I think is a really important thing, and and so, and there's a one other book. I won't remember her uh, the title of it, but her, she's fantastic. Her name's Elizabeth Saunders. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's at uh, George Washington University, and she's writing about it with respect to the United States. Oh, so I'm trying to do this in a comparative perspective.
0: Yeah, I think that you're you're really onto something there. Um, one thing about Xi Jinping is that you know, he does see himself as this world historic character. He really does. I mean, and and when leaders see themselves as sort of these Carlisle figures, you got to think that that does have an impact on the, on their style of rule. Absolutely.
1: And to me, I, you know, in our era of, of leaders, right. You got, you got Putin, Chi, Modi, Erdogan, Trump. You have this era where there are these strong charismatic personalities. Some would call them autocratic personalities. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think we need to just understand how they impact things, how they're how they're leading, and how they're expressing their societies.
0: That's a fantastic recommendation. Yeah, a whole set of. Them. Um, let me suggest that there's a new podcast out uh, by Jane Perlez. Oh, um, she, just, she, just meant, she just she just just she just stepped down just, from the New York Times. She but. did. She's she's in the states right now. She's at Harvard, and she just started a new podcast, and it's basically her quest to understand the person of Xi Jinping. Oh. That's and a great tip. I have tip. not given it a listen yet. I just saw the email this morning, you know, just I'll basically it out. announcing it. So I am going to check that out for All sure. All right. Thanks so, for the tip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, my recommendation is a little more bland. It's the um, the writer John McPhee. Uh, my, one of my best friends has been a fan of his. I asked him for a good recommendation to start, and uh, he recommended Basin and Range, um, which is a geography of the Basin and Range area, you oh. know, uh, uh, which – I mean, you're from what part of Montana? From the uh, western, part or? Uh, western part? Western part. Yeah. Western Montana. So you, you yeah. It's, but I was it's, born on the other side. Oh, okay. So. Okay. The geography. Um, and what's up with all the Montanans in China?
1: <laughs> that I don't know.
0: I mean, there's you and, you know, and, uh, you know Brent, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, 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 Bacchus,
1: Bacchus. he uh, lives in my hometown now. Tiff yeah.
0: Roberts from uh, Business Week, you know, yes. Montana, and he's back in Missoula now. As and
1: there's post- so, there's a tidbit you probably don't know that our current senator, Senator Steve Daines, uh-huh. uh, he's first term senator, Republican. He spent six or seven years of his life living in China. Wow. His kids speak Chinese. They used to live across the street from my sister. Oh, wow. So watch for him. He, I, I predict will. that he will become a kind of big player on U.S.-China relations. Uh, it sounds
0: like I need to take a trip out there and talk to him. Yeah,
1: you'd be welcome to
0: come. Yeah, oh, yeah, well, yeah well, well, absolutely. That would be, be great. So, yeah, Basin in Range, it's terrific. I McPhee mean, writes with this spare but really highly literary uh, very masculine style. Uh, okay. He was the uh, sort of the mentor to to one of my favorite China writers, probably my favorite China writer, Peter Hessler. Uh, so, and you can see sort of stylistic similarities in there. Okay. So, I'll check it out. Yeah. Thanks
1: so much. That was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me, Kaiser. Yeah.
0: And we got you out on time. The Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at SubChina News. And make sure to check out our other podcasts in the network. Watch the space for announcements of new podcast shows coming soon. Thanks for listening. We will see you next week. Take care.